when I compiled all of these stories together, or when I watched them back or listened to the interviews again, and I saw the, the similar threads, that's when the idea of an archive came into place. And for me, it's important work because I think it's important to know what your ancestors were up to. And whether we know that on a literal basis or where we know it on a spiritual level, whether we can feel it. And I just think of this, this Alice Walker quote from In Search of Our Mother's Garden, where she says, they waited for a day when the unknown thing that was in them would be made known, but guessed somehow in their darkness that on the day of their revelation, they would long be dead. And so that also speaks to, to dreams. And that's, that's basically what I want also my work to to be about and moving into the conversation of decoloniality i think that's central to that work as well to dream welcome to decolonization in action a podcast that considers how knowledge medicine science and the arts are being decolonized today my name is edna bonham and i'm broadcasting from berlin germany This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Season 3, Episode 1, and I spoke with Jessica Lauren Elizabeth Taylor, who is an artist, writer, and community organizer. Her roots are in the southern United States, born in Mississippi, and bred in Florida. Taylor's work investigates through performance, text, dialogue, dance, and community for Black people and other people of color. Her work centers on themes of ritual visibility and identity mythology. She is chiefly concerned with the ways to dismantle oppressive institutions and the creation of racial equity in art and theater. She strives to address race politics as a performer, maker, and artist. Her advocacy and organizing work stems from contemporary critical race theory. Taylor curated and hosted the almost monthly discursive salon Black in Berlin on race, politics, and race relations. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. And I wanted to say that I've really admired your work and I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Edna. I'm really excited. Yes, I just wanted to say that the the title of the podcast in particular is very interesting and signifying to me um, the inaction part, decolonization in action, because it just shows that decolonization is a verb, not a noun, and there's no, um, there's no end um, to the work that has to be done, the structures that have to be dismantled. So thank you for uh, hosting this and inviting me. Yeah, and... I think one of the things I appreciate is that you do so much in terms of being an artist, a writer, community organizer. You're from Florida and you have, in the work that you've done, really tried to integrate performance and also just community building. And I guess one of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about is how you as someone who creates community through interrogating race and racism as well as blackness and the various aspects of it i wanted to start and ask you about your origins living as a black person in germany people always ask where are you from and i just wanted to ask how your kind of upbringing as someone who was born and raised in florida helped to form your place or maybe displacement in germany Mm, well it um 
It informs it quite a lot. Um, I've been very fortunate enough to keep a lot of the, the country girl within me um, still uh, present in my everyday existence. And even though it was um, almost beaten out of me by, um, by instructors and professors, especially in um, drama school and in art school, I had a lot of professors and teachers trying to beat this, this accent out of me. And from Florida, basically, my story, um, of course, comes from my, my parents and my grandparents' story. Um, my father, when I was one, two years old, was working at General Motors in Meridian, Mississippi, where I was born. And he was in quite a high position. He was the manager. And a lot of people in Mississippi at that time um, weren't happy with him being in charge of several white people um, and being superior to them. And so we got a lot of hate mail and my father got a lot of death threats and our house was actually owned by a KKK member. And so we got a lot of terrorist threats. And so my dad decided to quit his job and the very luxurious upper middle class lifestyle that he had uh, cultivated for my family and uh, move us down to Florida where he was uh, raised and where my mother was raised. And he had a, a dream to start the first black business on Daytona Beach, which went unrealized because of um, racism, basically different barriers um, that were fi always fighting against him to have this business. So we moved to Florida and it was kind of a, a coming home for them. And uh, there was always lots of family around, aunts, uncles, and cousins. And my grandparents who were big figures in the, in the Southern Baptist community. My grandfather was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention for many years. And so I grew up in the church. And so coming over to uh, Europe, even moving away from Florida, some family members were against it. And uh, just because they knew of the varying levels of, of racism and prejudice in different parts of the world, and especially in Europe. And, you know, I think a lot of times Black Southern families want to keep you close, even if it's not necessarily a safer place. Mm -hmm. um, they just have you kind of within their, their reach or their grasp. So that's, that's my origin story. One of the things that you bring up, the question around the inequalities that Black people faced in the North is not necessarily spoken about in coming back down to the South because we hear so much about the Great Migration and very little bit about the other forms of uh, intermigration. And I guess one thing I want to ask is about the Rosewood riots that happened in 1923 in Florida in Levy County, in many ways, the Tulsa County riots that had happened in 1919 in Oklahoma had been part and parcel of insurrection of Black people having agency over local businesses, over having Black Wall Street. 
And your father's story of wanting to start a black business in Daytona, Florida speaks to that and echoes that. Was there ever, outside of your family, a sense that the black community in Daytona was actively working on building something similar to like the Tulsa Black Wall Street? Oh, definitely. Um, there were a lot of, I remember growing up, my mom was very um, big into uh, organizing for for black people and for black people's freedom and and liberation and my grandfather also so in a different sense through the church mm -hmm. um he started the first um aids ministry mm -hmm. in florida uh, which was really controversial at the time working with uh essentially gay people which was unheard of in the baptist ministry um but to your point Growing up, I did see a lot of black business coalitions, um, but I never saw them move past the point of, of franchising or growing um, because of these structural deterrents. And I remember, I remember my mother always always talking about that and teaching us about these different. Um, these different historical points like the Rosewood Massacre. Um, she taught us about it. And I remember she brought it into my school. I went to a, a tiny private Catholic um, school growing up and she insisted on Black History Month, uh, every month coming in and leading it and talking about things outside of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and Mary McLeod Bethune who was a, a local hero. In, in Daytona Beach, obviously. Our history had to, had to be brought in by our family. It wasn't taught to us in any way. And in fact, it was deprioritized and downprioritized by all of the um, kind of mainstay systems around me, which were my school and all of my social activities. I was very much into art and, and theater growing up and all of those were um, extremely white worlds. And so all of the, the economic growth potential that I would see growing up would be suppressed routinely. And, um, but aside from that, we had little bubbles, you know, black neighborhoods and our black neighborhood was unique in that it was centered around Bethune-Cookman at the time college, now Bethune-Cookman University. And having a, uh, yeah, a local icon like Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, um, and then having grocery stores, Black-owned grocery stores, Black-owned restaurants, and Black-owned boutiques, all in this kind of four-block radius. I guess one thing that I think is so important to to think about as well is when we think of Florida especially the northern part but I guess this Daytona is in the central part it's very much like the south like Pensacola the KKK and there are these other trajectories and other possibilities and growing up in Miami I also learned about Mary Bethune Cookman and her work as a, an icon as well as the work of uh, Zora Neale Hurston uh, who ended up passing away in Florida. Does Zora Neale Hurston impacts or influence your work? And if so, to what extent? Huge. Zora Neale Hurston was 
probably probably the first yeah probably the first black queer femme icon of mine and my mother's so in Eatonville Florida which is the first black establishment in I think the U.S. definitely in Florida that's where Zora Neale Hurston died that's where Alice Walker um, went to find her gravesite and had to hunt through basically a swamp for a gravesite that didn't have a gravestone. That's where Alice Walker bought her a gravestone and hunted down the people who, the local officials who would know more about her life. And that's where every year from the time I can remember, I was at least, oh, I would need to look it up. But I, I remember being seven, eight years old and going to the Zora Neale Hurston Festival every year. And that festival was at the end of January, the weekend of my mom's birthday. And that was a huge Black celebration. And in between the mid to late 90s and maybe early 2000s, the Zora Neale Hurston Festival was a big deal. It was like Essence Fest is now. I met Felicia Rashad there several times. We saw Earth, Wind & Fire there and Isley Brothers and that was the place to be. People came from all over the country to the Zora Neale Hurston Festival to celebrate this woman's life. And thankfully, uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God were, was on our curriculum in, in high school. So that wasn't like a history that was suppressed. I mean, I think the, the story of her life was, of course, and how you know she died poor, and we never learned about her her initiative. She also did fantastic community work, um, and we never learned about that. But at the festival, we did, and there was kind of a museum to her life, and and you could take a tour of the house that she used to live in. And I'm so happy to hear such positive iterations and just like life stories that affirm blackness. And it's so important in this moment where people are fighting for black, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is very much imploding on a global scale. And on the one hand, it, it, it addresses questions around not wanting to be killed. But it, part of that project isn't just about wanting to live, but wanting to live in a way that allows us to have dignity, to celebrate our culture, the arts. And your upbringing kind of points to what is possible when you integrate and put black queer women <laughs> into a you know high school syllabus or if you uh, are able to affirm and have community gatherings and see the people uh, who are part who are cultural workers art makers writers on display and in your life that 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 to me is very much part of the decolonial practice and in thinking about and wanting to go back to your work, who are the other theorists who influence your artistic practice? Right now, I'm really influenced by indigenous birth workers and their communication networks. I got to become very fascinated in this work when I was pregnant three years ago. And it resonates with me because of the because of the way they communicate with one another and how it's a very care-based practice, how it's a very body-based practice, how it's a listening practice. And yeah, how it centers in, in the corporal. For a very long time, um, I, was, I was really fascinated with the um, communication network of breast milk 
And that also came from indigenous birth work and just how the body functions and how it naturally moves and grows and creates. I'm also a forever student of Sarah Ahmed um, and her um, kind of call for unlearning that stays with me constantly. In the past year or so, I've gotten deep into Cesar and Stuart Hall and theories of negritude and, and just, just kind of looking at the, some of the beginnings of um, modern uh, Black decolonial or post-colonial thinking, trying to trace back to the origins of, of those writings. Yeah, and the, the people that you bring up, I think the starting with the indigenous forms of knowledge and the body, it, it lends itself to democratizing knowledge and information. And so, so that such that it's not just a question of, well, natural sciences and the work that is done in a university setting is the only kind of knowledge that we can take in. But as you described with uh, Sarah Ahmed's work of unlearning, how do we think about dismantling the hegemonic structures, the power structures that we've been told by design that often celebrate the victors of colonialism and or white supremacy, but rather people who want to or want to engage in a practice of care, of supporting and helping to reproduce the next generation of love. Those forms of knowledge is, is so important to, to, to tap into as one thinks about decolonizing uh, knowledge more broadly. For me, the, the process of um, how we convene in the space also it draws to that as well, just from with academic life and, and university, um, knowledge is hoarded and protected, is password protected. Um, there are all these barriers in place of, of registration and all of this registration comes with, uh, of course, economic features and citizenship features. And with birth work and care work, there's an open, I don't even want to say table because it's an open floor. It's an open ground where anyone is free to, to join in and the information is not guarded. Yeah, and uh, I think this is part of what we're witnessing now in this moment where from the time of the economic crisis in 2008 when that began, there was a call for universities to be free and for student debt to suddenly go away. So with the Occupy movement that took rise in 2011, I remember being in New York City and having to like, you know, camp out <laughs> outside Zuccotti Park and also City Hall um, several months before that for Bloombergville. And it, it points to not just how people are being stripped of their economic resources for the future, but that why is it that people have to pay for universities to begin with? Why is it that their guards determining who comes in and outside of these spaces? And how do we create, um, whether it's through community teachings, like people did during the civil rights movement, or even just like in the, the communities that we know, friends, the family, uh, there are informal ways in which we can pass on that knowledge. And I think uh, community work uh, is, is so integral to, to that. I remember all of the work that my mom did for the community was seen as unstructured or uneducated or um, kind of base level. 
And, and why is that? Why is it that when we want to pour into our communities or we want to um, congregate together and cooperate together, it is seen as lower level? Why are community centers so underfunded and under-resourced? And there are, you know, giant museums or cultural centers next door or across the street. Why is that? No, absolutely. And um, I think this, the unlearning that you, you just, you mentioned earlier with that Sarah Ahmed talks about uh, is one unlearning that I, as someone who has went through a university education, I'm trying to do. And it's, it is a, a lifelong process because I, in many ways, be, get access to certain forms of privilege because of my formal education and acknowledging that while also then saying, okay, well, what do I do with that privilege? How do I then allow space for people less marginalized than myself to move forward and to, to create that collective um, empowerment of the oppressed is perhaps the goal that one can do uh, in, as a decolonial practice within um, the diaspora that I, I live in, that I breathe, that I absorb in the environment. One thing I want to ask or talk about is your writing and because you're a writer as well. And I came across this quote by Toni Morrison, late African-American writer. She said, quote, the ability of writers to imagine what is not the self to familiarize the strange and mystify the familiar is the test of their power. How or to what extent do you see that quote relating to your writing process and do you find inspiration in Morrison's work? Oh, Toni Morrison, yes, deep place in my heart. Also another favorite of my mother's, another book that my mother gave to me at 12, 13, 14, or I overheard her, her reading in her book clubs and um, she would give to me and I, I, I read it, but I couldn't really understand it until rereading it again at 16 and 18 and 22. And I actually am rereading Sula right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that Toni Morrison is a great teacher for decoloniality in a writing practice. Mm -hmm. um, I aspire to that. I, I admire her use of, of character language without explanation. I really admire that. And that she doesn't need to, yeah, she doesn't, she's writing for black people. And that's very evident in her work. There's no tripping over herself to explain a place or a setting or a phrase or a, um, I just think of that, that point in Sula where one of the lodgers uh, mainstays in, in, in the house is this white drunk who the, the head of the household gives the nickname Tar Baby. And it's, it says everything it, it needs to if you have grown up in a Black American community with giving nicknames, ironic nicknames, and kind of cruel nicknames, uh, opposing nicknames. Um, yeah, and so I think that's kind of the magic and the mysticism um, in, in her work. 
if that answers the question. Yeah, and in some ways that magic and mystical element is something that you that I find in so many Black and Latinx writing I was assigned in high school. Isabel Allende, House of the Spirits, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and so many others. And when I was reading those texts, what they called magical realism is what I also saw in Edward Jandika, Haitian writer in Breath Eyes Memory. Or, and so Black people writing has, for me, always been magical and has had that mystical element that it in some ways can be presented as the everyday, but then has this other layer of this you know, spectacle and just imagining, is this real or not? Are people dreaming or not? And, and that beauty comes with the, a, a certain kind of imagination that, that captures sometimes pain, sometimes tragedy, but also just a new future. Yes, yes, and, and affirming. So affirming because I've spent so many years being embarrassed at so many different parts of my upbringing, of the people and, and their names and their demeanors and their physicality and the, the way they talk and all of that. In these work, Edwidge Danicat and, and Toni Morrison and Zora Nohurson and Nikki Giovanni, all of these writers, they're, they're reflecting that and saying, look how look how beautiful and interesting and, and mysterious and complex and dire these livelihoods are. The first time I met you in person was here in Berlin. It was for a film screening of your film, Motorada. Is that how you pronounce it? Motorada? And that film basically calls for femme forms of ancestral history and the ways in which people from throughout the Americas, as well as here in Europe, and imagine different versions of motherhood. How did you go about coming on working on that project? So it's Mutaeda, and um, the word can mean Mother Earth, but it the the way I chose the word was that it also means topsoil. The Mother Earth, it's the richest part of the the soil. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had a residency um, at the first place it screened, which was District Coombs and Culture Fluterong. And there was a garden out back. And I had been thinking a lot about um, lineage and matriarchal lineages. And I was always in a bit of despair that I didn't have any information or not much information on my matriarchal lineage. I never met my my grandmother, my mother's mother, and the same is true for my mother. My mother never met her grandmother. And my mom would always tell me this story um, when she would ask her mother, you know, what was your childhood like or or what was your 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 mother like? And my grandmother would say, leave me alone, I don't want to talk about it. And that kind of speaks to everything that is the Black American history of not knowing where you came from or it being stripped or having to hide it or being shamed in some way. But the one thing I knew about my grandmother and my, and then this was passed on to my mother and to me was that um, they all loved to garden and had green thumbs. And so I got back into the the garden out there in district and I just started planting and I decided I wanted to talk to other Black femmes who had a relationship to mothers or mothering in some way to see if 
they had experienced anything similar and the results were shocking. I initially just wanted to speak to them individually for, you know, a half hour or so. And it turned out to be five, almost two hour conversations each with stories that were um, in miraculous ways. And these were five different femmes from, as you said, from Argentina, from Dominican Republic, from the US, from uh, French Gabon, and from Benin. So wide reaching places of the diaspora and all identifying in varying ways of ability and gender, sexuality and class and upbringing, social status. And, but the stories were, were similar. The stories were the same about what they were taught by their mothers or their aunts and the narratives that they were supposed to uphold as being female socialized black people. And so it just really, it really got me thinking about this interrupted knowledge and how the knowledge that we, that we have in, in physical libraries and from books obviously isn't the only kind of, of knowledge. It's as important, if not more important, to have these oral histories. And so it was important for me to create an archive. And that's been, that was the beginning, the generation of all of the work that I'm doing now and I want to do in the future, which is to, to create an archive. And that's so commendable because one thing that I find for my own work is similar to you, it's hard to find matrilineal connections but for the entire family and that has a lot to do with my grandparents and my parents being born on Haitian farms where there were no birth certificates and documents and ways to prove things in a textual manner per se but that it comes through other methods through folklore through music dance food of like rituals of healing so creating that archive in some ways or trying to figure out how to collect that information and centralizing it so that it might be easier for someone to look back is an ongoing process that many people in the diaspora have to engage with. I want to ask you about decolonization because we briefly mentioned in the beginning that you like yes. that decolonization is an action. Just going back to that, I wanted to just say this, um, this Alice Walker quote and and also to kind of demystify my work, because I think a lot of times artists are portrayed as if they have some grand vision going into their work. And that's absolutely not true for me. The, a lot of my work is very, uh, at the beginning, is very self-serving. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of community work, but the, the genesis of it is to find out something about myself or to answer a question that I've been toying with in my head or to find out more about people on a one-to-one on -one basis for my own <laughs> enjoyment or curiosity. And when I compiled all of these stories together, when I watched them back or listened to the interviews again and I saw the, the similar threads, that's when the idea of an archive came into place. And for me, it's important work because I think it's important to know what your ancestors were up to. And whether we know that on a literal basis or where we know it on a spiritual level, whether we can feel it. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think of 
this this Alice Walker quote from In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, where she says, they waited for a day when the unknown thing that was in them would be made known, but guessed somehow in their darkness that on the day of their revelation, they would long be dead. And so that also, yeah, speaks to, to dreams. And that's that's basically what I want also my work to to be about. And moving into the conversation of decoloniality, I think that's central to that work as well, to dream. Yeah, and that relates to Toni Morrison. She once uh, wrote, quote, as a writer reading, I came to realize the obvious, the subject of the dream is the dreamer, end quote. And I think the thing that's so beautiful about thinking about dreams as part of a, and specifically Black dreams, as part of a decolonial practice, is that it allows space uh, for imagination, it allows space for healing, for extending beyond a kind of narrative of trauma, but one of growth, of empowerment, of community building. Because decoloniality isn't, at least in my sense, in my opinion, just a political question, of abstract question, but it's a complete reimagination, a restructuring, and, and opening up the possibilities that upend the power structures that have uh, very much oppressed us and tried to hold us down for so long. How is decoloniality then integrated into your artwork as well as your practice? I'm still integrating it, so I'm not fully there yet. I have a very long way to go. In terms of my writing, it's about being more free to use AAVE, African American Vernacular English, the language that I grew up with and not feeling shame by that or not putting in in quotation marks. That's just one very specific example. But I think it's important to to give specific examples of uh, decolonization, decoloniality, because it lives in this abstract world. When we talk about it, I notice that it quickly, um, you see a lot of eyes glossed over or people like it's out of my realm, I don't understand, or it's too academic. And that's because we're not, we're never defining what it could be. Um, but that's also because the definition is always moving, which it should be. And it's always uh, growing and changing. But when I think about how to define decolonization and, and how I do it in my work, it's, it's always a stripping down or a stripping away of structures that don't address the needs of the community it's meant to serve. When I go into a public space or a cultural space that purports to be for the people, quotes, or for everyone, quote. Or even when I create this space, I look around and I ask myself who's missing, and I ask what are the barriers to entry that prevented them from being here. It's not accessible. It's um, at this time of the day, um, there was an entry fee, things like that. And I think that that for me was a really good, very low starting point to how to put decolonization into action. And then it's about questioning. It's about a conversation because when I, when I ran the, the Black in Berlin Salon um, a few years ago, one of the things, one of the comments I got most from the people that I wanted to be there, which were uh, BIPOC cultural workers was, we don't feel comfortable in these spaces. We don't want to be in these spaces because we felt policed in them. We felt alienated in them. We've never felt represented in them. And so for a few years, my 
Oregon practice was about giving us ownership into these spaces and making us feel like we belong there. But now I see that decoloniality purports cooperation, not with white institutions, but cooperation within ourselves. And it lends itself to a practice where cooperation is key, that it's ownership, it's not about ownership for anyone, that these spaces don't belong to anyone at all. They belong to, to the community at large. And so it's just about reminding myself of that over and over and over again. Who is it for? Who is it serving? Who's missing? Yeah, and that's, that's so important to ask. And also to be able to invite critique uh, while still being humble. I think that it can be sometimes very difficult to accept critique, but it's, it's such important work if we think about what can we do and how can we be better with building that community. This is a very uncertain time in the sense that there's a pandemic, COVID-19 raging, there's massive strife over the inequalities that Black people face globally. And while it can be easy to focus on that, I want to ask you, what are some of the acts of joy that you've engaged in in the past several months? Well, I'll stick to the past month because I've had a revelation. And the revelation has been setting boundaries. Believe it or not, it's a very adult way to find joy. <laughs> um, but setting boundaries, because for so long, I equated joy with certain activities, mm -hmm. a, a planning of certain activities. We're going to plan this day out, um, especially having a baby and planning around schedules and nap times and feeding and all of that kind of stuff. We're going to have this day out and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. And, and that's it. And then maybe it's actually very stressful. Mm -hmm. And so what I've noticed is that by setting boundaries with people or relationships across the board this past month, I have given space for joy, mm -hmm. for joy to be found in random moments at the playground in the middle of the day or in the evening or in actually a meeting with black collaborators. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's just been about making that space this past month. I, set a, a brand new boundary for myself when I quit a project on decoloniality um, by a white institution that, again, took it as an abstract notion, but weren't using any anti-racist practices. And a year ago, I would have continued with the project. I would have worn myself thin and ragged, and I maybe would have blamed myself and I would have retreated and exhausted myself, but setting this boundary, it felt so freeing. And having the, the ability and the energy to say no has been, yeah, the most joyful, <laughs> joyful thing I've done in a long time. I think that that boundary setting means that then you have more agency over your time and it sounds like what you were able to do with the joy making and the world making concerning joy is just spending the time the way that you want to spend it as opposed to perhaps how other people want, might want to extract and perhaps exploit your time um, and that is something that as you know black femmes <laughs> like us 
ha have experience and can often experience vis-a-vis -vis care work and other things that don't often get recognized and appreciated. Yes, exactly. How are you creating joy? I think I'm creating joy by learning to rest. I'm learning to be and commune with friends and to really laugh out loud, to basically work on appreciating those around us since it's not always clear if people are going to be around for very long, including myself. And so, yeah, I think our histories reveal so much and um, not just be like, well, in this linear progressive manner, because I don't want to think in those terms per se, but rather just that, you know, we carry so much with us and there's so much that we get from our relatives, our family, and just from our ancestors. And I, it's so important to honor that and to acknowledge that as part of who we are. Like we are here because our ancestors refused to die. <laughs> they were yes. like, we need to be here. And I'm learning more and more uh, how to embrace that, how to honor that, how to just yes. be present yes. for that. Embracing and enjoying the moment kind of, you know, is what what is guiding my practice of joy and it takes a lot for me to take a break i don't know about you for me to just sit and be like okay i'm gonna not do anything yes. <laughs> so i i'm just learning i'm learning that i'm learning to just take naps i love naps yes. but i'm learning to do that yes or to or to do nothing i oftentimes if i'm sitting somewhere and I, I'll sit there and I'll say, I think there was something I was supposed to do. My partner's like, no, you have nothing to do. Just sit there. You could just sit. And I'm like, well, let me get a book. I could at least make a to-do list. No, you could just sit and be. And naps are, naps are the best. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for sharing us, sharing with um, the podcast, your history, your project, your ability to think deeply about art and writing and just continue doing the work that you're doing so that others can learn and grow around you and be inspired. Thank you. Thank you for creating this, this platform. It was, it was really joyful actually to, to dialogue through these issues. And, you know, it's, I learned something every time that we talk about it, you know, because we're not used to discussing it. Yeah. And I think that, because COVID is raging and people are practicing, or at least the people I know, as to the best of their ability, um, social distancing, it means that in general, there's less of those like organic one-on-one, face-to-face opportunities to dialogue. And I think that's what I miss so much. I'm grieving that. I, I feel like you know sometimes people grieve other humans in, who have left the earth but I'm grieving the socialization that came so quickly and easily by just seeing each other and meeting and convening in mass. Yes. Soon yeah. come. Soon come. Soon, <laughs> soon come. will come. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. Thank you. My name is Edna Bonom and you just listened to season three, episode one of the Decolonization in Action podcast which featured socially distant voices based in Berlin, Germany. I would like to express my gratitude to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, as well as Christina Kober.
As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find more information about the people, events, reference, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and various forms of social media. I hope you can reflect on the power of words and actions and figure out concrete ways to build a more just and equitable world. Thank you for joining us. 